Talk Recorded live. Sasha, it's good to talk to you. Babby and Otar here. And um, as we said, we want to talk to you more about your philanthropy and the journey that you've been on and some of the lessons learned and the advice you have for others and really just um, what what your passions are and, and what when you put your head down on the pillow at the end of the day, what are the things that you really feel good about and what gets you up in the morning? So just uh, if you want to share a little bit about your journey and and how you've come to focus specifically on women and children issues. Um, yeah, thank you for asking me to do this. I really uh, feel that it's, it's such a nice opportunity to be able to help me bring some of actually my ideas to the forefront of my own mind. Um, I think that, you know, this started out for me as uh, kind of a healing process. Um, I think that coming from a really difficult adolescence um, and and childhood, I, I sort of narrowed in and realized when I thought it was all these other things that I was you know, being uh, benevolent and I was being generous and kind by giving money away and so on and so forth, I really realized that in the end, this has um, really just been healing for me to sort of focus in and, and want to help other young women and girls who, you know, go through this difficult time in their life. And I have seen that regardless of uh, very often socioeconomic status or gender or race, that there there are some universal experiences that young women and girls go through. Now, whether it's biological or sociological, I'm not really sure. However, I do think that in general, we tend to um, ignore or to marginalize so many of the, the needs that these girls have. And when I have the opportunity to meet somebody in an organization who gets that and really sees these girls as tremendous human potential, I get really excited. And I think that for me has just been this wonderful sort of healing process for myself. Um, and that's the truth of it, I think, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And why why girls in particular, Sasha? What about the young boys in the cultures and how did you determine that, that girls were the emphasis? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting you ask that because when I first started doing um, this work, uh, I definitely felt that it was singular to women and girls. Absolutely, I wouldn't even consider an organization that wanted to bring men in or boys into the conversation. And now I have gone completely to the other side and feel that it's, uh, if we do not engage um, boys and men in changing behaviors and attitudes, uh, we will never reach equality. So I really do feel very strongly about that. Having said that, I do not singularly, I do not fund organizations that silo that opinion. So um, if it's an organization that's only working with boys, um, and or only working with girls and doesn't have any inclusion of those voices, then that's not a group for me. You know, I really um, think that it's important that, that it's brought into the entire organization. 
you know, that, that, that they could have programming that's separate, but that it's really important that there's some type of overlap because if, um, if they can't experience each other's issues, they're not going to come to any understanding. We're not going to come to any understanding. So I do, that is kind of a criteria around that issue. That's, that's great to hear. Uh, so sort of walk us through a little bit about your journey, how you came to get involved in suddenly becoming a philanthropist if one doesn't just wake up writing the text. <laughs> that's right. That's so true. Um, but maybe some do. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I think it, for me it definitely was uh, a journey. And I had been a stay-at-home mom for a few years. And, uh, you know, I had worked. And then I, I moved to California and decided, oh, I'll take my time before I decide what I'm going to do. And then it just I ended up staying home with, with kids and getting more engaged in community. And then um, around the time of my third son's uh, middle school, end of middle school, I just said, I, I, I'm dead. I, I can't, this is just not where I want to be. Um, I really felt it was kind of an overnight experience of loving what I was doing and then all of a sudden not not loving it, but just really needing to do something different. And at the time, my daughter was a senior in high school, and she was very engaged in um, community service and said, you know, in one of these impulsive moments, um, as teenagers are so apt to do, mom, let's go to Africa. Now, if you'd said that to me now, I would just completely laugh it off. But at the time, I, you know, was sort of, okay, let's do it. So we got ourselves into a very wacky situation, um, working in an orphanage with uh, 12 children, um, four of which were HIV positive. Uh, and when we arrived, the staff of the orphanage just left. And we were there to take care of all these children with no protocols, um, with no wow. precautions, with no information wow. whatsoever. Yeah, and it was, we were there with a cook and ourselves, and we were in like a little compound, and, you know, we, um, what's that expression, trial by fire, could not have been more of an uh, appropriate um, expression. So we, we, you know, my daughter was 17, and I would say one of the things that I've done exceptionally, exceptionally well in my life is be a mother. And so I just completely went into mother mode. Um, how I think what I walked out with after six weeks was just um, how how much resilience there is in these in these kids. Um, and one of the things that happened was because the community. Uh, or it was felt at least that the community would not be open to knowing or having children who were HIV positive in that community. It was kept a secret from everyone, but it was just an undisclosed secret. Everyone knew that the, that the orphanage housed children who were HIV positive. Um, I think in the end, it just made me want to be this wholly transparent person. I just, I don't know why, I just sort of thought, why are we all, you know, um, pussyfooting around here when the whole community knows these children are HIV positive and they're not getting what they really need? It also taught me um, not only about the resilience of the children, but of myself. 
and I think that when I came back, um, I know this is kind of long, but I'll tell it to you just because it's kind of funny and interesting. When I came, and one more piece to that was, I think it was a very good experience for me to understand um, that it, it is actually a skill to be able to manage when your uh, norm has been disrupted. And I think I, that I realized that's something I can do really well, that you can throw all kinds of things at me when, um, you know, you think that you've got things in order and I can just sort of juggle that and it doesn't ruffle me. There are other things that ruffle me, but that was really a good learning about myself. Um, came home and was completely lost and just so had no idea what out? I was You got to back up. I, I got to know how you got out of there after six weeks. You're there with your daughter. What's your daughter's name? Can I use her name? Yes, her name is Olivia. Olivia, okay. Um, we had some crazy experiences while we were there, and, um, you know, the staff eventually came back, and we just left. I mean, they knew that we had a, a short, you know, that we were only there for that really short amount of time. Um, and so it w- they came back. We taught in a school for a while. That was another crazy experience where the teachers never showed up, so we actually taught classes. Um, <laughs> the children would chase us all over town because they loved having us, and, and we, we got to be quite popular. Um, so we just came home. You know, the tour was over, and, and I will say this, that they waved goodbye weeping when we left. It was really funny because they had never had anybody come in and pull things together. I mean, we had all these kids. We had them cleaning their rooms, sweeping the floors, getting rid of garbage, straightening and cleaning. We had a regimen every day. You'd come home from school and you did homework and you did this. So, you know, kids love structure. So they thrived on it because it was like having a mother there. So it was kind of funny. Have you been Um, back? No, no. It was in Ghana. And I I have to admit, I love the Ghanaian people. They are some of the most... uh, upbeat, most positive people I have ever met in my life. And I, I don't like to make those kind of generalizations about any country, but wow, I really enjoyed uh, the people of Ghana. So we came home and I was completely set adrift. Um, I think you can imagine where I was sort of in transition. I went and I did this experience and was, you know, a thousand percent focused and, and successful I came back and I just said, now what am I going to do? And I just felt completely adrift. And it was Christmas time and I had gone to my, I was going to my husband's office party, uh, which is, you know, one of these very dressy, dolled up kind of affairs. And uh, I walked into the room. I was all dressed up with my fancy dress and my high heeled shoes. And a friend of mine, who I only see once a year, who is just one of the funniest people I know, walks over to me and says, so what have you been up to? And I said to her, well, I just came back from Africa and I don't know what I'm doing with my life and I'm completely lost. And she said to me, oh, you need to talk to my friend Sarah Hall. And she literally just turned around and walked away from me. And I was standing there with my mouth open, kind of, wait a minute, who, what? (laughs) And the next day, I received an email from my friend Gloria introducing me to Sarah Hall. 
I didn't know who she was. I had no no idea what a philanthropic advisor was, nothing. And so she happened to be living in San Francisco at the time, and we met in uh, Union Square, and we had coffee, and I was so intrigued with her. And at the end, I just said, you know, I don't know why we're talking. I don't even know who you are or what you do or anything. So she started to tell me, you know, she was a philanthropic advisor, and it just all clicked. It just completely clicked that this is definitely what I would like to be doing because I had this incredible opportunity to um, be, you know, a recipient of, of, of a very strong economy. And, um, you know, my husband and I both came from very lower middle class backgrounds and were very successful during the, you know, prior to the big crash and all that and realized that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to you know, see what I could, what kind of impact there could be made using resources. It just felt like something I, I was sort of born to do. And so that from there, it's, you know, turned into the How Fund and then Present Purpose Network. Long story. <laughs> no, great story. Um I'm sorry, pardon me, did I have my own business? Did you and your husband have your own business? You talk about his office party and coming from middle class. Oh, no, 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 no. My my husband works, oh, did, he's retired. He worked for um, a small investment firm out here in San Francisco. But we're both from the East Coast. I'm from New York and he's from Boston. He actually says, Pasaka in the Havid Yad. And, um, you know, and his dad was a welder and we just uh, met before college and, uh, you know, we moved out here to California and his company did really well and he was just really successful and we both had never, you know, we'd never had money. We never worried about it because it just wasn't, and we never were, remember that old expression from the 80s, not expression, it was an acronym called DINKS, double income, no kids. Yeah. We never, you know, it was always, I would be in grad school, he'd work. He was in grad school, I would work. And then, um, you know, he was finishing his PhD and I was working and, and then that was taking, I just kept working and working and working. And then uh, he got out, got a job, and then I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go uh, back to school and finish my degree, and uh, I got pregnant, and we moved to California. So that sort of just changed everything. But no, we didn't have our own business. And what? I didn't catch your husband's name. Oh, I'm sorry. His name's Fred. Fred. Okay. Well, tell him hello for us. <laughs> I will for sure. He's a funny okay. guy. He's put up with a lot over these years, and I'm I... I'm taking. Yeah, I'm taking him to South Africa. Um, yeah, I actually, he and my children, we all went and lived in the bush for five weeks, and um, that was quite an experience. <laughs> was that Fred's first time overseas on my test? No, not overseas, but um, let me just say, let's see. His, when he worked, uh, when he was working for, the, for his firm, um, he traveled probably, I don't know, he traveled 
he would travel for three weeks at a time, two weeks at a time. Um, the shortest would be if he was doing anything domestic, maybe a few days in the U.S., but he traveled to China, India, um, Latin America. So he's actually traveled more than anybody I know. And um, once he retired, he didn't want to travel anymore. But I took him and the family, everyone wanted to go after the Ghana experience. We went to Kenya and we um, stayed out in the bush. Now, my husband is a business traveler. He happens to be one, one of the most easygoing, just low maintenance people you can imagine. But the one thing for him is because when you're traveling and it's for work, you're always working. So they always had nice hotels and, you know, business class seats because you're always working. You work on the plane then you sleep, you get off, you go to work. So um, when he had, yeah, so it was staying out in the bush in these huts and it was rough. <laughs> it was a pretty, he didn't get out of the, the little room that we had. Um, he didn't get out of the bed for, I think, like two days because he just, couldn't believe what had just happened to him and where he was. <laughs> um, but he is a doer, um, and I became really sick at one of the sites because it was shallow well water that we were drinking. And he just, my husband, I can't explain it, he's just a doer. He's not hyper or anything, but um, he never would just sit down and watch a TV or anything. He just, he's always doing something. And uh, I think when I got sick, it completely shocked his system, and he went into his mode. He said, okay, I need to fill up the bags and let the sun heat the water so we can have showers. I need to do laundry, which means I have to go pump water, which, and then he'd have his whole day planned out. And he was, after that, he was, he was good. You know, however, me being sick wasn't helpful, but still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he pulled it out, yeah. So that was, oh. you know. <laughs> So now the whole family, did you say you have three kids? I do have three. I have a, a son, a daughter, a son. And so Olivia's in the middle. Olivia's oh. in the middle. My, my, my oldest son is Harrison. He works in um, Los Angeles, lives and works in Los Angeles. And my youngest son is Willie. Uh, and he is a junior in college. Nice. And where is Olivia now? Olivia is, she has followed her mother's footsteps, and she works at an incredible nonprofit here in San Francisco called Genesis Works. Um, they pipeline underserved youth. Well, she doesn't like when I use that word but I don't say it derogatorily. I, I actually think it's a fantastic organization. Um, so they seek out uh, kids who what they call are the missing middle, the ones who are not, you know, of, of kids who are of color, who are, you know, impoverished, who are not high achievers and are literally um, not the very lowest, but the ones that get the least amount of attention. Um, and so they take them, uh, they give them, a tr they train them throughout the entire summer and then place them into paid internships in corporations here in San Francisco for an, an entire year. And wow. during that, yeah, and then during that year, they work with them uh, in their professional capacity and then to go to college. And these are kids who have never, I would say most of them have never 
ever thought they would go to college. So wow. they're actually inspiring them to go to college, whereas some of the other organizations around that, that I loved as well, such as Summer Search or Juma or um, you know, East Bay College Fund, those kids have already been identified as going off to college. Uh, these kids are, are pretty, yeah. So that's what, yeah, so she's working with, with kids, and, and she absolutely loves it. Nice. All right, well, you get healthy in Kenya, and Willie and Harrison and Olivia are there, Fred's pumping water and getting yeah. the showers ready. So what happens next? Um, what happens next is we all come home, and everybody sort of processes their experience. Um, my oldest son probably had the funniest response I've ever heard. Um, he, at one point, I forgot, when I came home and I said, okay, I'm going to start a foundation, a family foundation, and I'd love everybody to be involved. And my oldest son said, um, so he was probably, he was probably 18 at the time. Yeah, I think he was 18. And he said, you know, I've done Africa and it's not for me. <laughs> so, you know, that was it. He's like, I'm done. That was enough. <laughs> and uh, that shut him down. He just didn't want to get involved in it. And Fred was not really eager. He was still working. And I think it really kind of did him in. And Olivia was kind of doing her own thing. She went off to college in Colorado. So what I thought was going to start out as something for the family ended up really just being sort of my baby. So I started House Fund and um, decided that I wanted to do women and girls because there was just something about this um, need for girls to be heard, I think, for me, that felt really important because I myself, felt that I never had a voice when I was an adolescent girl and I had a situation such that had I a voice, no one was there to listen to me. Um, I, my, mother, I did, my mother had died in a car accident. My father was absent and then he himself died when I was 15. And I just never felt like I really had a voice that anybody was going to listen to, but yet I had a very, very strong sense of justice like really a sense of what I felt was right and wrong. And I really just had this feeling that girls were not listened to, they were not heard, they were not respected. And I think a lot of that came from my own upbringing and, and what I understood as, um, you know, that girls were meant, to, you know, I grew up in the 70s. Um, I was a teenager in the, yeah, in the 70s and I, you know, girls were literally having sex because other girls were saying to them, you know, you really should do it. It's not cool that you're walking around a virgin. Or you should smoke cigarettes because it's cool. Or you should just, just hang out with that boy. Oh, don't say anything about it. You know what I mean? Like if anything ever happened, you know, if he went too far or you said no about something. And I just had this very strong sense that there was this injustice behind it. And no one told me there was. Nobody, nobody ever said to me that this is wrong, follow your instincts. If anything, I, I would say I had, the social cues I had were completely the opposite. 
you know, that you should just go with the crowd. You should do what the boys want to do. Do what they tell you to do. Don't make a lot of noise. Don't be bigger than who you are. You know, those kinds of messages, um, especially around your sexuality. Um, So I would say that one of the things I work on a lot with my grantee partners, especially two in particular, one is called Comera, and the other one is called Fortress of Hope Africa, is um, girls not only sexual reproductive health education, I mean, that's essential, but also negotiation. So one of the things we're doing this year with, um, I started with, with two of my partners, is called the East Africa Girls Summit. And we're trying to build this summit that we bring girls from East Africa together every year. They set the theme. Um, and last year, what they decided was they wanted to talk about negotiation because they need the strength um, and the skills to be able to negotiate with young men. Uh, they felt that one of the pieces of their life that was really causing them some tremendous anxiety was how do I say no? And so we thought about this and said, it's not just about how they negotiate sex. It's how they negotiate with their parents. It's how they're going to negotiate their teachers. Uh, And there is a lot of sexual pressure on these young women. Um, And so we just decided uh, that this is, we talked to them and said, how would you like to be able to learn skills that you'd be able to carry through? And this is what they wanted. You know, people think it's, oh, they want social entrepreneurship. They want to learn, um, you know, get better education. Yes, they do want that. But we have just seen how much anxiety comes from this one piece. Um, You know, because the organizations that some of them that I work with have already taken uh, some of the issue of impoverishment out of the picture by offering these young women uh, scholarships and paying for them to go to school so they never have to worry about it, so they're fed, they have their medications, they have their uniforms, so on and so forth. And it's it's still, you know, things are so much better for them, but this issue around negotiating their sexual life um, with boys is still very anxiety-producing. Um, so that's something that we're going to work on. I know I kind of got off track there, but that's such a uh, an issue for me that I think can, you know, having this art and skill of being able to negotiate for women and girls is huge. It's not the be-all to end-all. It's not a, you know, panacea, but I do think it is something that we don't take enough consideration into is literally we're, we're modeling behavior for them. We're sitting down, they're having the conversations where they're literally saying to each other what they've heard and how do I say no and can get myself, extract myself from a situation or how do I make this a positive? So that's what we're doing at the summit this year. That's great. Um, are there, do any of the young men participate or is it just the women? No, this one is just for women. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. We haven't, we're not at that point yet. Yep. We, we know that that will be a part of it. This is only our second year and we didn't get quite enough funding. We got actually some great funding. We're really thrilled 
However, we wanted to try this first, and then we're going to work that piece into it. I think what we're going to do is have, like, boys come in maybe for a day, because it's a four-day summit. You know, maybe do some conversation around that. But, you know, the other thing is, it's a very interesting point you're bringing up here, too, because one of my partners, Fortress of Hope Africa in in, um, uh, Magor, wait, what's it called? I forget. It's in... uh, Gandora Slum, they have what the issue they're working on is the normalization of rape. Um, and so they're, they're taking that in a very holistic approach and looking at all the pieces. And, and what they're working on right now very strongly is this issue of inclusion of the boys and the men. And I think you might have read about it in the paper. There was recently a program that was being worked for boys and they were being taught how you should defend girls when you see this happening because they all think that it's normal to force a girl to have sex. And uh, I guess a young man actually saw a girl who was being um, harassed and bothered and went over and and sort of saved her from the situation. I think he was like 12 years old. So it 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 does have legs, that's for sure. Fantastic. Well, back up a little bit. So you come back, you start the house fund, and your family. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I think I, I took this far because I'm so intrigued. But so the family is not enamored with starting a foundation. No, <laughs> no not at all. You not at all. Persevere on your own. Yes, I did. I just went full forward, and luckily. Um, had some really good guidance. And it's interesting, the first grant I made uh, was to an organization, actually ended up being an organization out of the United States. I think it was a really good choice for me to have a couple of home runs so that I could get my toes wet and feel successful, even though I knew I really wanted to work with more grassroots organizations that were um, run by indigenous folks and and people who are from the country but it was called hands to heart international and since then they've they've gone gangbusters they're huge but they worked actually um with uh actually maternal work with women and babies now it, it ended up being it trickles down into and not trickles down what's more the word more like concentric circles so the organization might very well say we are teaching women how to, um, you know, nurture and care for their babies, but it ends up being so many of those mothers are young girls yeah. who are 12 years old, who are 10 years old. It's horrifying. So, so the concentric circles are such that that's your inner circle, but then it moves out, right? How do we prevent those pregnancies? How do we look at child marriage? Da, 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 you know, it goes on. Anyway, the point I was trying to get to was that um, – she, the, the, the woman who was the ED of the organization actually came down to San Francisco. Um, she came in my house. We sat at the kitchen table and we just talked and this was great and it was my first grant. And that very conversation turned into an article called Kitchen Table Philanthropy um, that my friend Sarah wrote. And then after that, we both did kind of a speaking engagement around how to attract female donors and it was really interesting because it was one of the very first when this sort of wave came around about women and philanthropy and how important it is to engage women in philanthropy 
we went to this conference and it was not, you know, overly packed. It wasn't, it was well attended, but over the years, this particular conference has grown to be huge. It was at the very beginnings. And our session was packed. It was just packed. We couldn't believe it. Just talking about women and philanthropy. And so I started to really understand how important it was um, for women to now have a voice as well, that it, that it, you know, it's so organic. Uh, if you really looked at, at my portfolio, you would realize that when I say girls and young women, the people that are being served go from nine years old, you know, into uh, most average is 35. But, but you can't stop those wonderful concentric circles like a pebble when you put it in the water. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so that, that was the first grant. And then after that, I was sort of hooked. And what, I think... What, what, what's the year? What, where are we in time-wise? Okay. Oh, my goodness. I wish I had... I would say um, probably... Let me think. I don't know why I'm so... A, I would say 2000, I think it was right before the crash. So let's say 2007. Okay, great, thank you. Yeah, 2007. Um, so that was the first grant I ever made. And it was pretty exciting. And then I think what I became quickly to realize was this wasn't going to work for me. I, I'm not going to be a checkbook philanthropist where I'm just, that's not me. Because I'd had that experience in Ghana, and I'd gone off to Kenya, and I realized that for me was where the juice was, my inspiration, anything that was giving me energy was really being on the ground and knowing what was going on. I'll give you a quick example. I was asked, someone asked me if I would make a grant to an organization that did, um, you know, micro lending for women or uh, what would it be? It's called... Uh, Oh, gosh, I'm losing it. Like community banking, savings, savings and loan groups. That's it. They said, would you do, make a grant, kind of like a BRAC, but a small scale. And I thought to myself, this is a very, you know, I said, oh, I'm not going to do anything with banking. Oh, that's crazy. No, no, I'm not doing that. And so I actually went to Uganda at one point and somebody came to me and said, um, would you like to see what savings and loan group we're working with. And I said, savings and loan, I don't want to do banking. Why are you getting me engaged in banking? And then I, you know, I kept my mouth shut. And then I realized I get there and it's literally women sitting under a tree and they have a little box. And inside the box is some coins and some bills and some pieces of paper, chits of paper that have names on them. Um, and they proceeded to go through this fairly complex, but um, very efficient manner of, of collecting money. And, and, and I said, so where, where do you keep it? And they said, we keep everything in this box. And I said, really? And where does the box go? And the woman said, in my house, in a drawer, you know? And I said, this is the craziest. I just couldn't believe it. So it completely opened my eyes to what this is about, right? I mean, I'm thinking a bank, a building, or a vault, <laughs> Right, and 
here these women are under a tree with a box explaining to me, and I'm asking, how do you pay your bills? How do you do when you when you lend someone money? How do they pay for? Where's the checkbook? Where's the transfer? How's that happening? And it was so. I very quickly understood that I needed to be the kind of philanthropist that this was going to be full engagement for me. That I wanted to be on the ground seeing exactly what was happening because for me that was the only way I was really going to understand anything that had to do with impact or metrics or how I wanted people to engage with me and how I wanted to engage with them and how did I want to represent myself. Um, That was just sort of happened uh, that it's really important to me how I represent myself. And I think that was a really big moment for me because as a funder, if you don't want to be seen as a dollar bill sign, then don't bring that to the table. You know, there's, there's this inherent power dynamics that are at that table the minute you walk through the door. And they're based on, you know, everything you can imagine, your color, your skin color, your gender, your where what country you come from um and so i realized that that just didn't work for me i very quickly come came to understand that being on the ground was really important to me so site visits were absolutely critical and that i was going to work really really hard on mitigating any of the power dynamics that come around um from being you know a thunder that I was going to do everything I could to to just try to take they they they're there no matter what but to try to um, diminish power dynamics and allow people to open up to me because I wanted to be accepting of all the challenges and all the successes. It's how, it's just disingenuous to not be that way as far as I'm concerned. And how do you overcome those? Because I mean it's. As you said, it's always going to be there. How, how do yeah. you feel? Um, well, I mean, there's a bunch of things that, it, that you can, there's so many parts of it. And now the irony is I'm actually working with grassroots women and teaching them how to have this piece of professional development and dealing with funders and how to um, craft grants for yourself that are going to be successful for you and how as a woman do you want to, represent yourself to these funders. So it's kind of come around in a way. Um, I really I really do my, my, my utmost to walk into the room. I don't go in there, um, you know, first. I, I'm very, I try to be as respectful as possible. To, I try to um, not be less than who I am, but try to actually bring out my best qualities. So I come... Uh, I don't want to get too new agey, but I feel that if I come from a place of love and service, people are going to feel that and they're going to be put at ease. So it has to do with body language. It has to do with who walks in the room first. It has to do with how I shake hands. Um, It has to do with how I make eye contact or I don't make eye contact. Um, I have to really quickly suss out the situation. Clearly, cultures are different. Um, Who's speaking, but who are they speaking for? Uh, I also try to, it's hard to do, but I very often try to do um, 
initial site visits as not even knowing that I'm a funder. Uh, that, that has its moments. It doesn't always work, but I try very hard to all sometimes go with other people. So, for example, I got to go with Ashoka. I've had some site visits that have been sort of with other organizations where I can be sort of in the background. Um, and I think when you start engaging and you start having a conversation and being really open and talking to people about what are the challenges that you've had? What are the successes you have? And then I tell them the same thing. I tell them challenges and successes that I've had. Um, we, I, I, I also try very, this is another piece backing up, I really try to sit and talk to people as, as if I can, I have a good intuition for this, to talk about who they are and their family first, instead of just let's sit down and get to brass tacks about being a funder. You know, are you going to give me money or not? Mm-hmm. Now, when I talk to people, though, who are from North America, it's very often quite different because I get a lot of the fitting a square peg in a round hole is what I call it. So when somebody knows that you're a funder they, and, and they really are young, uh, not just in age, but in their, the, the growth of their organization, they try very hard to do whatever they're doing, make it fit your funding. Right, So someone will come and say, well, we're doing solar lamps and girls need solar lamps so that they can you know, have education and go to school and so on and study. So I very quickly will say, um, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. I think it's great work. I want to tell you right now up front that this is not a match for any funding from the Howe Fund or Present Purpose. Now, if you would like to speak to someone else, so let's say we're at a conference, please, please go ahead. There will be no offense taken, but if you'd like to just sit down and talk about the organization, I'd love to because I'm a community supporter. I hear so many people who are looking for this kind of organization or who might be interested in this. So I, I think that the process, the, the actual act of trying to diminish those power structures are contextually different almost each, you know, each time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, no, it all makes sense. It, this all resonates. It's beautiful the way that you approach things. So, well, thank you. Oh, thank you for the work that you're doing. So you're, how does your family feel? You're traveling more. You're getting more involved with the foundation. And, I mean, just saying right. it on and trying to, Outline your yep. price yeah, had to be pretty massive undertaking. Yeah, it it really it wasn't too bad because I just sort of did it as as I wanted to. So I remember somebody not too long ago said to me, um, they asked me if I would. It was a foundation, a very very large foundation in New York that works that that um, addresses girls, women and girls. And they said to me, listen, we have are writing up um, kind of a primer for nonprofits that approach us and who are asking questions about how people fund. Would you be willing to fill out this sort of survey with questions that say, you know, if I apply for a grant um, and and the, the foundation rejects us, can we do it again? Or what are your criteria for 
um, acceptance and rejection. And I wrote back and I said, you know, you know me a little bit, but let me just tell you, this doesn't work this way for me. I said, I operate a little bit differently, way more under the radar. I make small grants. And again, I'm saying I, I, I. I don't have staff. It's me. It's me. Um, when I was working with Present Purpose, it's myself and Colleen, and we have a, um, an intern. You know, it's really about intuition. So I would say 60%, more than 60%, 70%, is gut instinct, and the other 30% is due diligence. I have very often had, I actually have one partner that is, we are so tight, I work with them so closely, and she, we really work a lot. We're, we're doing the, the East Africa Girl Summit together. Um, she, I said no to her for five years. And it wasn't that she was just coming back in my face, in my face. I just watched their growth. And she was awesome. She never asked me again. We just got to be friends. And then she said, would you be on my board? And I said, no. And we just kept, there was something there. And she just would ask me questions. And she knew that I was not, you know, it wasn't like she was trying to court me because she knew I was going to give her $100,000. She just really, we, we, we developed this strong relationship. And I really watched what she was doing. And now... You know, it, it was just instinctual to me um, to do that. So I guess what I'm trying to get to in that question is you're saying, you know, my family was not, they didn't see this was not for them. This just wasn't anything that they wanted to pursue in the way that I did. So subsequently how it's turned out is um, everyone thinks what I'm doing is great. Uh, yes, I started to travel more. It definitely put stress on my family because that had never happened. They had mom around all yeah. the time. Um, it was tough. It was it was hard. And my husband just retired, like I said, from travel for 26 years with a company, and he's now looking at me and saying, "I never knew you worked so hard." <laughs> I just can't, I cannot believe how hard you work. This is insane how hard you work. <laughs> um, so the, it is a lot to juggle. And I'm learning. I'm definitely, I'm definitely learning. Um, you know, I say no a whole lot more, you know, than I ever did. And I'm not worried about my status. I'm not worried about am I the best? Am I the most important? I just really don't care. I, I honestly, at first I did, and now I, I just don't care about that. So I think that brings me to a place where it's so much more joyful. You know, there, there are operational moments, I would say, because of Present Purpose Network, which has a lot of operational stuff in it that um, I feel, oh, I, don't, I can't sit in front of this computer, in front of this Excel spreadsheet another minute. But I'm just, I'm very fortunate that I can, I say no. And like I said, it just doesn't concern me. I want to be doing the right thing. I don't really care how many people know that I'm doing the right thing. Um, I just really, that means that, that the depth of my work, I, it just every day gives me such joy to, to understand 
context, um, cultural competency, uh, to, to understand what, what people are really tackling. That kind of information, I don't know, just keeps me alive. It just really does. I love learning. So where, where are you focusing your attention now? Are things changed since Fred's retired? Uh, yeah, I would say, I, I don't think his retirement has changed. I would say, well, no, yes. I would say what his retirement has done has put me in a position where I'm more focused and I'm more, um, uh, what would you say, selective because I want to spend some time with him. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really think hard before I say yes to something. Um, whereas before it was sort of, oh, yeah, sure, I'll say yes. I, I'm not really sure I have something that day that's all that much better to do. So, yeah, sure. <laughs> now there's more, um, you know, there's a lot more consideration and, uh, to, to be able to spend more time with him. And I'm really lucky he's going to come with me on my two-week trip to South Africa. So oh, that'll be... Gonna, I didn't know if he would yeah. travel with you again. Well, you know what? We had a little conversation about it, and I said to him, you know, you really don't have to do this, um, and we're going to stay in nicer hotels. I, you yeah. know, I knew we were staying in hotels that were, were – it, it doesn't have to be top of the line. He just likes to be in a hotel where he has a bed and a hot shower. You know, being in the bush was not even remotely close to that. I think my everyone in the family lost 10 pounds. They didn't even have to try. Um yeah, so it's it is a little bit of juggling. Now, you know, I'm I'm really fortunate with Present Purpose Network, which is the collective philanthropic platform that I'm working on with Colleen Lafontaine. She is a real true partner. She has tremendous operation strength and I've got depth of relationship strength and um really knowing how to build relationships with our partners. So that, I would say, right now is the biggest piece of work that I have. But I decided that this year I was going to really commit. We're two years old, and we just have this desire to do, to do um, really great things with our partners. And the only way we're going to be able to do that, not the only way, but the biggest way for us to make headway on, on some of the things we want to do is to get more members so we have more resources. Having said that, we're not, I think you remember, I told you we're not looking to become huge. We just want to be 50 strong, and we're right now at about 30. So, yes, there is this juggling, and it's, um, again, it is part of the bigger story. Each time I have to approach it and say to myself, you know what, this is going to make for a good story. This will make for, you know, will be a great piece that's going to add to the bigger story. And, and that's sort of the way at, at this point in my life is the way I see this. It's just this really wonderful story. And, and what's the title of this story, Sasha? I have no idea. I mean, really, I have no idea, but it's really to think of it this way as opposed to me thinking um, about struggle has been just instrumental in, in changing my view on life that I, I say this all the time. I, 
I, I like I said at the beginning before we started recording that story of the gentleman being quite disruptive in my talk. I thought to myself, this is such a great story to to carry with me, and and um, you know, I do really believe that the human element in all of this is are the connections, the human connections that I'm able to make. Um, you know, to find out that one of the preeminent women who's HIV positive herself, who's working for the rights of HIV AIDS of women in South Africa, um, is positively exhausted herself, is those are the human stories, the human contact that inspires me always. It's not you know, reading all the nitty-gritty articles about gender inequality and um, rights and sexual reproductive health and rights and abortion rights for women. It's, it's really those stories that I think give me the desire to keep doing this when I say, eh, maybe I should close shop. You know, I'm not really sure where I'm going. Or I feel like I don't have a focus. And, uh, those, those are those human stories that we connect to as human beings. And it really, to me, is about um, your gut. It, it's kind of not a flashy word. It's not a, it doesn't have warm and fuzzy around it, but there's always something that your heart and your gut just goes with, and that's what keeps me wanting to, to, to do what I do. And like I said, I, I work differently. I don't have this... I don't have metrics. I don't have one Excel sheet after another lining up all my partners and how much impact they've had. I mean, I I keep a really strong relationship with them, and that's how I really understand where the impact is. When they tell me these stories and I say, holy cow, I never imagined that would have happened, mm-hmm. you know, from, from this particular grant. Sasha, uh, they're going to make us move locations. Sorry about the disruption. Can we call you back? I just want to hear a little bit more about what's next and some lessons learned and advice for others. If you, if you have a little more time, I, I've I so do, much. and I hope I haven't overstayed my welcome as far as you're concerned. No, we'll, uh, we'll should I? Right okay. Okay. Bye-bye.
still there? Are you still there, Sasha? 